Well, let us continue in worship this morning by opening the word of God to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And we will be reading beginning in verse 14 this morning. Acts 2. In the world of scuba diving, there is something known as decompression sickness. It happens when a diver goes very, very deep into the ocean and then ascends too quickly to the surface. When that happens, the nitrogen he has been breathing under deep waters begins to produce bubbles inside his body, which can cause severe nerve or tissue damage. Thus, the deeper the diver goes, the less his body wants to return to the surface too fast. The body will react violently if the changes in pressure are too sudden. In other words, the body begins to adapt to the ocean's depths and no longer desires to go up to the shallows. I believe that to be a good analogy for what we're doing here this morning. We are diving, as it were, into an ocean of truth. And this ocean is very vast and very, very deep. In that sense, my hope is that we will all develop at least a small measure of spiritual decompression sickness. In other words, my hope is that by spending more and more time in the depths of God's word, we will find it harder and harder to go up to the surface of worldliness too quickly. My hope is that with every sermon, we will get more and more comfortable spending time in the stability found in depths of truth so that we become less and less comfortable in the instability found in the shallowness of this world. After all, my brothers and sisters, this is not our final home. We are pilgrims who are just passing through. Thus, we make every effort to live our lives in the depths of God's truth. Now, with that somewhat cheesy analogy in mind, let us dive in. See what I did? (laughs) Today, we begin a mini-series of five sermons, focusing on Peter's first sermon, which covers 23 verses, Acts 2, 14 through 36. Moreover, this apostolic sermon was prompted by one simple question, which is the title of our mini-series. The question came in response to the events of Pentecost that we saw last week, and it is found in Acts chapter 2 at the end of verse 12. As the crowds heard the mighty rushing wind, as they saw the tongues resembling fire, And as they heard the disciples speaking in their own languages, they were amazed and they were perplexed. So the question was asked, what does this mean? In the next 23 verses, the apostle Paul will provide the answer to that question. And as we will discover the events of Pentecost, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit means several things. It reveals many, many truths. So this morning, we will begin with an overview of the entire sermon. However, I do want to give you the outline for the next several weeks. So if you're following the notes, uh, here's where you fill in the blanks. With that question 
What does this mean? In mind, Peter will explain precisely the meaning of Pentecost like this. In Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 21, Peter will tell us that Pentecost means that God is faithful to his promises. God is faithful to his promises. According to Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, Pentecost means that God is sovereign over history. God is sovereign over history. According to Acts chapter 2, verses 24 through 28, Pentecost means that God is incorruptible life. God is incorruptible life. And finally, according to Acts chapter 2, verses 29 through 36, Pentecost means that Jesus is Lord and Christ. That is the breakdown of Peter's sermon. Now, when he finishes, we will see the crowd's response to his sermon in chapter 2, verses 37 through 41. Interestingly, their response to his sermon also comes in the form of a question, which we see at the end of verse 37. What is that question? Brothers, what shall we do? And then we will end the chapter with a description of the early church recorded for us in chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And I have titled that sermon, The Marks of a Pentecostal Church. Yeah, you like that sermon, the title, huh? (laughs) The Marks of a Pentecostal Church. And we're going to ask questions. Are we a Pentecostal church? And I believe we are. Just don't, don't get too nervous about that. We'll, we'll cover that. Interestingly enough, that's the sermon I wanted to preach uh, at the beginning of the year. And it happened that it will be uh, the first sermon of next year. That is the outline we will follow for the next several weeks. Now you know exactly where we're going. But as I said this morning, um, we are in the overview section of the outline. This means that this morning, I want to show you some of the critical components we see in Peter's first sermon. We'll fly over it and we'll take a broad perspective on how Peter approached the answer to that question of verse 12. What does this mean? In particular, I want to highlight four critical components we see in these 23 verses, all of which are essential to the Christian life, as I hope to prove in the next few moments. Now, please listen to the reading of God's word, beginning in verse 14. But Peter Standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be declares, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood 
before the day of the Lord comes, the great day and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnessing, witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the father, the promise of the Holy spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, your footstool. Let all the house of Israel, therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Let us take a look at the four specific components we see in Peter's first sermon. I'll mention them first in his first sermon. We see testamental continuity, thematic unity, theological clarity, and practical urgency. First, testamental continuity. Testamental continuity. What do I mean by that? Peter's first sermon is firmly anchored in Old Testament prophecy. Peter's sermon is firmly anchored in Old Testament prophecy. By testamental continuity, I mean continuity between the old and the new, between Old Testament prophecy and New Testament fulfillment. In Peter's understanding of Old Testament prophecy, Peter did not draw a sharp line between what was prophesied and what they were witnessing during Pentecost. In other words, Peter saw the scriptures as following one continuous message. This explains why there are at least three direct quotations from the Old Testament in Peter's sermon. Also remember this crucial fact. The Old Testament was Peter's what? Bible. The Old Testament was Peter's 
Bible, the New Testament was being formed as the events recorded in Acts unfolded. But why does this matter? Or to be more direct, why does it matter that Peter quoted the Old Testament in the context of new covenant realities? That's important to notice. Peter quoted Old Testament text in new covenant context. Why? I'm going to give you several reasons. First, Peter quoting the Old Testament texts in a new covenant context reveals that both Old and New Testaments must be understood as a unit, as a unit. In other words, the Old and New Testaments are not seeking to present two separate unrelated stories. It is of utmost importance that we don't think that with the dawning of the Lord Jesus Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit, something unrelated to the Old Testament is occurring. Nothing could be further from the truth. Of course, by saying this, I am not denying that with the incarnation of the Son of God and the subsequent coming of the Holy Spirit, something greater than the Old Covenant was taking place. Yes, the disciples were witnessing something greater than the old covenant, but not something unrelated, not something unrelated. Second, Peter quoting the Old Testament texts in a new covenant context reveals that the Old Testament writers were not fully aware of the extent of the meaning of what they wrote. What do I mean by that? I mean this. When David wrote in Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, which Peter then quotes in Acts chapter 2, verse 34 and 35, David could not have understood the full implications or the full meaning of those words. He knew the Christ was coming, and he knew this man would not see corruption in his flesh. David anticipated these events by the spirit. David was given insight into the future. He prophesied. Nevertheless, David did not get to see what these words actually meant as Peter and the apostles did. In fact, I want you to turn in your Bibles to first Peter chapter one, first Peter chapter one verses 10 through 12. I want us to consider how the same apostle that is preaching during Pentecost, Peter, understood the prophecies given in the Old Testament by men like David and others. This is very revealing of Peter's hermeneutics, his understanding of scripture. First Peter one, beginning in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, meaning the prophets, that they were not serving, they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Interesting to know 
that these Old Testament prophets, David included, knew they were not serving themselves, but us, meaning later generations. Old Testament prophets did not understand the full implications of what they wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit, but they knew later generations would come to a greater and greater understanding when all these things came to be fulfilled. Now, all this takes us right into the third reason why it is important to note Peter's use of Old Testament prophecy in his first sermon, and it is this. Peter quoting Old Testament texts in a new covenant context reveals that revelation is progressive. Progressive. This means that the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is not like the difference between a house and a tree. Rather, the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is like the difference between a seed and the tree. This is why Peter saw a high level of continuity between the two Testaments. The Old Testament was like the seed. The New Testament is like the full-grown tree. Peter knew that the Old Testament should be understood and interpreted by the greater and the clearer revelation given to us in the New Testament. Why? Because the new brings to light that which was concealed in the old, to paraphrase St. Augustine. The New Testament opens up the old. Now, if you insisted and you asked why, one more time, I would then take you directly into the next critical component we see in Peter's sermon. Why is there continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Well, here's the second critical component. There is thematic unity. What do I mean by that? Peter's sermon is unquestionably tethered to Christ Jesus. Peter's sermon is unquestionably tethered to Christ Jesus. It is quite clear by looking at this sermon that Peter understood Christ as the key to all of written revelation. But how did Peter reach this conclusion? Why is Peter so Christ-centered in his preaching? Well, certainly, as a Jewish man, Peter knew the Old Testament was progressively revealing the Messiah. What might not have been as clear to Peter was just how much the Old Testament was about the Messiah. It took both the teaching of Jesus and the power of Jesus for Peter to finally grasp the centrality of Christ in biblical revelation. As Peter gave his first sermon, he would have had in mind the words he heard from Jesus that we find recorded in Luke chapter 24, verses 44 and 43, when Jesus said to the disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything, notice that word, everything written about Israel, that everything written about the temple, no, that everything written about me 
in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Interesting. The law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, which was another way of speaking of what? The old Testament. Peter said was written about me. I believe Peter's first sermon in Acts chapter two is evidence that his mind was indeed opened by the Lord Jesus so that he could finally understand what the scriptures was, was about. Now, Peter knows it was all about Christ, but notice with me the aspects Peter highlights five in particular. First, Peter highlights the incarnation of Christ, the incarnation of Christ in verse 22 Peter speaks of Jesus as a man attested to you. Why is it important to Peter that we don't lose sight of Christ's incarnation, his humanity? We'll discover that answer in more depth as we move along. For now, and in anticipation to what we will develop later, Christ became a man because throughout the Old Testament, men were the ones who sinned. Men were the ones who disobeyed. Men were the ones who failed. Therefore, men were the ones who died and needed rescuing. Therefore, Christ became a man. Second, Peter highlights the legitimacy of Jesus in his sermon. The legitimacy of Jesus. Notice how Jesus was a man attested to you by God. Attested to you by God. It is almost like Peter is saying this. Everything Jesus did was a type of certificate of authenticity. Number three, Peter highlights the death of Jesus. The death of Jesus. Read with me verse 23 once again. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite, definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That verse alone is truly mind-blowing. I can hardly wait for us to get there. Number four, Peter highlights the resurrection of Jesus. Peter will explain why this man, Christ Jesus, could not remain dead, but had to be raised. In order to prove his point, he will bring in David's prophecy as recorded in the book of Psalm chapter 16. And number five, Peter highlights the exaltation of Jesus. Peter will tell us why it makes perfect sense that everything the Old Testament predicted and spoke of is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for this, he will quote from Psalm 110. After we're done, there should be no question as to the Lordship, divinity, and authority of Christ above all things and his centrality in all of scripture, beginning in Genesis all the way through Revelation. Christ Jesus is the central figure of all. So why did Peter see continuity between the two Testaments, the old and the new? He saw continuity because the theme of both is one and the same. Christ Jesus, the savior of sinners. Christ Jesus, his incarnation, his legitimacy, his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation. Two distinct ten testaments, one 
glorious theme. Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Amen and amen. So we have seen two critical components of Peter's sermon. What was the first one? Testamental continuity. And the second, thematic unity. Now let us consider the third critical component. Theological clarity. Peter's sermon is highly revealing of the Trinity. Highly revealing of the Trinity. Admittedly, the doctrine of the Trinity was somewhat uh, hidden in the Old Testament. It is there for sure, but slightly concealed. Peter's first sermon, however, is highly, highly Trinitarian. Peter is unapologetic about his understanding of God as a Trinity operating in perfect unity. But let us be clear. Peter is not creating some new doctrine. Peter is simply expanding what was already present in Jewish monotheism. By being Trinitarian, Peter is not denying the Shema. What is the Shema? What we hear in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is... One, Peter is not ending Jewish monotheism. Rather, he is explaining what monotheism truly means and what truly is. As we will see soon, true monotheism must be Trinitarian. Trinitarian. I want to give you a few examples. In verse 17 of Peter's sermon, Acts 2, as Peter quoted from the prophecy of Joel, we read, and in the last days, it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Notice that in, in that verse, Joel and Peter are speaking of God as pouring out his spirit. But then notice what Peter says in verse 33 of the same chapter. Speaking about Jesus, we read, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the father, the promise of the Holy spirit, he meaning the exalted Christ has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So who sent the spirit? Did the father send the spirit or did the son send the spirit? What's the answer? Yes. Yes. Whose spirit is he? He is the spirit of the father, but he's also the spirit of the son. Moreover, in verse 34, we are given a little window into a very interesting conversation between the Lord and the Lord, between the Lord and the Lord. So how many Lords are there? Well, According to the Shema, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. So how can the Lord have a conversation with the Lord? Can you answer that for me? We will consider those issues carefully as they come. For now, think about this. Think about this. The way Peter speaks about God forces you and I either into Orthodox Christian Trinitarianism or pagan idolatry. He doesn't give you any more options. Let me explain. We as Christians don't believe in two Lords. How many Lords are there? Just to be sure. We all agree. 
one. We only believe in one Lord. That being the case, we need to do something about Jesus being both Lord and Christ. If Jesus is Lord, then what about the Father? Again, how many Lords are there? Okay, so if Jesus is Lord, what about the Father? What about the Holy Spirit? And also, wasn't God's Son Lord already? These are very important questions. Now, how can these these questions lead into pagan idolatry if we are not careful. Well, consider the Jehovah's Witness. That is a classical example. They have looked at the biblical witness regarding the Trinity and have concluded something quite horrific. They have concluded that if Jesus is Lord, as the Bible says, then he must be a God with a small g. Jesus is a God with a small g, just not the God according to the Bible. They have concluded that since there is only one God, then Jesus' lordship must mean he is some kind of God, but in a lesser sense. Now, this runs into all sorts of very severe, soul-damning problems. Jehovah's Witness theology is an example of heretical monotheism. A monotheism that denies the clear biblical witness regarding the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But as I said in my introduction, we are diving into an ocean of truth. And it is truly very, very deep. So as we go through our study, we will ask the Holy Spirit to teach us so that we can give our triune God the glory in a way that faithfully represents who he is. Brothers and sisters, we cannot get the Trinity wrong. Or if we get the Trinity wrong, we sacrifice the very essence of Christianity. And here's the fourth and final critical component we see in Peter's first sermon. I placed it last, but it's certainly not least. Practical urgency. Practical urgency. Peter's sermon demands a response. Please notice how this sermon cannot be dismissed as irrelevant. Why? For this simple reason. What Peter is saying concerning the works of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit demand that you either believe it or reject it. In fact, in verse 38, Peter will tell his audience what the truth he just proclaimed actually demands from them. What did he tell them? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Here's a critical point we cannot afford to overlook. Christian doctrine, Christian doctrine is always calling us to respond. Always. Truth is always practical is never in the abstract, is never only intellectual. Truth is always calling us to respond. There is no divorce between theology and practice. Consider this. Throughout the sermon, Peter gives us facts. And not just facts, but heavenly facts, such as what we read in verse 32. This Jesus God raised up. Verse 33 being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. 
verse 36. God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, let me ask you, where are all the imperatives? Do you see a lot of imperatives in the sermon? You don't see a lot of imperatives. It seems like it is mostly indicatives. Peter is mostly pointing at facts. This is what God did. The spirit came. Jesus died. He was raised. He's seated at the right hand of the father. He's pointing at facts. He's giving us indicatives. Peter is presenting fact after fact after fact. Jesus died. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus has been exalted at the right hand of God. Jesus sent the spirit and this Jesus is Lord and Christ. All these are facts, but make no mistake. All these facts call for a response. In fact, the way you live your life is a response to this sermon. Because if Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is Lord and Christ, then you can either bow the knee before him and confess him as Lord, or you can walk away. But the possibility of neutrality is effectively removed. In other words, this sermon does not allow you or I the possibility of just having good feelings toward Jesus. I kind of like him. I'm not against him. I'm fine with this Christianity thing. I'm fine with this Jesus, but remain otherwise uninterested. No, my friend, Peter will not let you get away with that Peter won't let you get away with just good feelings or friendliness toward Jesus. Jesus is my friend. I am friends with Jesus. Have you heard that song on YouTube? Don't do it. It's bad. (laughs) Jesus does not want your good feelings toward him. Jesus wants your life. He wants all of it. He is Lord. Do you see what is very clear in this sermon? If you cannot see it, let me tell you what it is. For years, especially growing up, I heard many preachers say something like this. You need to make Jesus Lord of your life. Now, I understand what they were trying to say. It's all out of good intentions, but it doesn't make a lot of sense. According to Acts chapter 2, verse 36, God has made him, Jesus, Lord and Christ. Did you hear that? God has made Jesus Lord and Christ. We don't make Jesus Lord of anything. He already is. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, not just knees and tongues of believers. Did you notice that every knee believer and unbeliever, every tongue believer and unbeliever, everyone will confess what that Jesus is Lord. Likewise, scripture says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Notice again that the Lordship of Jesus is not something we create or give to him. Rather, the Lordship of Jesus is something simply we confess. But you and I, we have no power to make Jesus Lord of anything. He already is. All you have to do, all I have to do is to confess it. 
But our confessing or not confessing does not make Jesus more or less Lord. No human being and no created being can take away from or add to Jesus what is rightfully his, namely his lordship over all things. And whether you reject, it, reject him for the rest of your life and you walk away from him, he will still be Lord. And one day you will bow your knee to him and you will confess him as Lord, whether you want to or not, because he already is. He already is. In a very real sense, then, Peter's sermon comes to us with a divine weightiness that it is impossible to miss. Through Peter, the exalted Jesus himself calls men, women, boys, and girls to repent of their sins, believe in his name, and live in submission to his lordship. Because he is Lord. Let me just give you three quick lessons from Peter and we'll be done. Number one, only a triune God can save us. Only a triune God can save us. From Peter's sermon, it is absolutely clear that without the Trinity, Salvation cannot be explained. In fact, I could even put it like this. Peter can only make sense of our salvation in Christ by appealing to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is also consistent with the rest of the witness of the New Testament. This further means that if you deny the Trinity, you destroy salvation. You destroy salvation. Salvation. This is why I believe religions such as Islam, um, Jehovah's Witness, the Mormons, they are essentially walking in a damning religion. Because according to the witness of Scripture, only Father, Son, and Holy Spirit can save humanity. And we'll explain why this must be the case. The Trinity is not an optional doctrine. It is an essential doctrine. You remove the Trinity, you remove the possibility of salvation. It is that simple. And we'll get to that in more detail as we move along. Number two, there is no hope outside of the incarnation of Christ. There is no hope outside of the incarnation of Christ. My prayer is that as we look into Peter's sermon, your heart and your mind will be driven to a greater and greater appreciation for the wonderful truth that the Son of, man beca- the Son of God became a man. Peter will make it clear that our hope of forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with God, and heavenly glory are all tethered to this one man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived, died, and rose again. In other words, Peter will insist that this incarnation is personal. The incarnation is not just a historical fact, but a historical fact that changes everything about you in the here and now. In fact, the incarnation explains the meaning of history and also the meaning of your personal history. It explains not only your life, but it even explains your death. The incarnation changes everything. And finally, what I already said, but I want to emphasize this again. Biblical truth is always a call to action. Biblical truth is always a call to action. Why is this the case? Please think about this. Consider this. Listen to this. All the imperatives we see in scripture are the outflow of divine lordship. 
All the imperatives we see in the scriptures are the outflow of divine lordship. Therefore, everything we read concerning God, his lordship, his redemption, his power, his wisdom, etc., all of it is constantly calling us to greater and greater conformity to his will. Implied in the lordship of Christ is the willing submission of his subjects. Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Yes, the same one who was crucified. As such, he calls us this morning to continue to believe in his name and to live in a manner worthy of the call to which we have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Why? Because Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this simple yet important reminder of the unity of your revelation, the centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ, the importance of knowing you as a triune God. And always, always remember that truth leads us to life. Thank you, Father. And I pray that through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, you will help us to apply these things into our daily lives as we continue to look to Christ, who is both Lord and Christ. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.